Good morning to all of you, especially to those who are visiting, new to the church. You are coming at a very odd morning uh, for preaching. I am doing a bridge sermon, that is, I'm going between chapter 1 through to chapter 2 of James. We will not spend time in James, but it's to build a foundation for the book of James since we'll be dealing with poverty. I thought it would be helpful to deal with the theology of poverty in the scripture, and I'm going to deal with four misnomers that exist with regards to poverty. One of the most discussed contemporary practical aspects of ministry that spans the entire era of the church, possibly the uh, Old Testament as well, is the church's relationship with the poor. How should we relate to the poor in society? And as we head into James chapter 2, I want you to pre- prepare your minds theologically and fundamentally um, as we try to understand what the Bible says about the poor and how this church and every other church that aims to be biblical or to respond to the poor in society and also those in the church of Jesus Christ. Both the church and society have a common awareness and goal of helping those who are poor. It's become more common today than it was a few years ago. However, in the pursuit to help and care for the poor, there has been a progressive movement towards, notice, Marxism, temporal, sociological, and economic transformation in society. So even though the desire is good, that is to deal with the poor in society, we are not heading in a biblical direction. We're actually heading in a Marxist direction. And I'll point that out to you later on. One of the major contributing factors in the church is the hermeneutical blind spot that many have and many commentators uh, today have on this issue. For instance, in James chapter 2, he says these words, I think it's verse 7, Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? Well, there you go. God favors the poor. God is on the side of the poor, and so therefore, by definition, we must be on the side of the poor. That is the logic that many have in uh, the Christian circles today. The immediate and instinctive thought is this. This relates to the economic poor in the world, and therefore, if God is on their side, we must also be what? On their side. Yet James, in the context that he's writing to, is speaking about a poor person that is a working person. Still poor, but he's a working person. And in his context, those who are poor, they have been discriminated against in their courts. Their wages have been withheld, which contributes to their poverty. And they are judged um, illegally, I should say. Wrongly, wrongly. But this is often not even considered. All we see is the word poor, and immediately we make the jump from that poor in James' time to the poor in our time. And we think it's got to be the same people. It's got to be the same people. For instance, Alan Busak. I know, I know. I shouldn't be quoting him. I'm quoting him for effect, not for theology. He speaks about how he came to salvation through his mom, and she spoke theological truths uh, to him, and he says later he realized that she was actually purporting liberal theology, which explains his views. But he says this, uh, uh, quote, speaking about his mom, I guess she had a critical intuition about the, about the Bible, which resisted apartheid thinking without being of overtly political, but which also had what I now call an intuitive ingenuity for the deepest, most consistent message of the Bible. So what do you think it is? I'm going to tell you what it is, because he says, yet it is, a book of a God who seeks justice and liberation, who takes the sides, he's plural, not mine, the sides of the poor and the defenseless, end quote. Hmm. 
That is the most consistent fundamental message of the Bible. God takes a side of the poor. Why? Because James says so. God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. So surely God always chooses a side of the poor. He, as many other commentators, interprets James' words of the poor to mean economic poor, the poor today. It's not that simple, though. The word for poor is a very nuanced word in the New Testament. And then we have to consider the variety of different words in the Old Testament. So when you see poor or needy or afflicted in the Old Testament or New Testament, don't just think in terms of how we understand it. It is your responsibility to go back and study what those words actually mean. And so I'm going to help you with some study that I've done on these words to give us a more biblical, rounded understanding of what is meant. Why does James say what he says? Well, if you listen to the words of Jesus, it sounds awfully familiar. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, 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 wait. That's almost the same as what James says. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be what? Heirs of the kingdom. Now, he's not quoting Matthew, but using the Logia Jesus, the words of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. He's not familiar with the writings of, of Matthew because Matthew has not been written. So he's quoting what he's heard people say about the words of Jesus. So in principle, James is saying the exact same thing as Jesus is saying. There's a state of poverty in mind. And has God not chosen those who are in that state of poverty to be rich in the kingdom? That is what James is saying. He's not talking about the economic poor. But yet, when we see the word poor, what do we think? Poor in the world. Must be economic poor. When James speaks about choosing the poor, he's not speaking about God choosing the side of the poor. He's talking about God's election of those who are poor in spirit. Now, in James's context, they are literally poor. They are economically poor, as the rest of the book will show. Their wages are withheld. They, they are discriminated against. They are not well off. There's a number of reasons because of the uh, reasons, uh, because of the Roman invasion and because some of them lost their land in this invasion. Rich in faith is contrasted to poor in this world in James's mind. We'll take a closer look at this in a few weeks' time, but for now, it does not mean that God always stands on the side of the poor because there are wicked people who are poor and who oppose God and who hate God. God is not on their side, not at all, not in the least. Many get the idea that the rich are always wicked. And in James, they are. In those passages, the, the rich are often set in contrast to the poor. And the poor is often shown to be in favor, um, to be uh, in God's good graces. But here's the thing. Historically, everybody was poor in the New Testament time. Hmm, why do I say that? Because there was only two classes, the rich and the poor. The rich were those who controlled the court system, who controlled the lands, and who controlled um, commerce. So if you want to be a uh, farmer, you have to go through the rich. They controlled the, the world of the day. Then you had the poor. Didn't matter if you had five properties, didn't matter if you were a working person, you were considered poor. So by definition, when James speaks about poor, he's speaking about everybody that's come from the world into the church being a Christian at this stage. So again, historical understanding of poverty is not resident in our, in our minds when we think of poor in the Bible. Poor could include the working class, those who had a temporal lack of food, drink, clothing, shelter, health, employment, land, freedom, dignity, and honor. All of those people are considered poor. Not exactly the same as today. During biblical times, especially by the time uh, Rome came about, there was no middle class. I think I just mentioned that. 
the elite, the rich, mostly rulers and the religious rulers were landowners. They controlled, interestingly, the court system that has to um, make a decision on disputes with regards to the working class. Some, I think you could probably equate, um, what is our, um, another ombudsman uh, uh, equivalent to that? Um, Sorry, what? Possibly public, yeah, protector. So let me just say it this way. So the, the rich in the biblical New Testament time controlled the legal system that's supposed to defend the poor, the, the working class. Uh, you can know the outcome if the rich is controlling the courts. See, the problem is that we think through the lens of a socioeconomic state of poverty. Whenever we see the word poor in the Bible, we think of the lower class, we think of the marginalized, we think of those who are considered poor today, in today's world. And so we take that understanding and we reinterpret what the Bible says and means with regards to poverty. This ignorance will result in dangerous theological views, but also practical implications. When we go to application and we only think through the socioeconomic status of people, we will come up with all kind of application that is not derivative from the text. Where social transformation is only economic transformation. Overcoming economic poverty. For instance, liberal, liberal writer who's currently influencing this guy, influencing the evangelical church today, even though he's a liberal thinker. James Cohn, in his book, Christianity and Black Power, says this, quote, Jesus' death on the cross represents, take note of this, God's boundless solidarity with victims. Hmm. Even to death. So Jesus is willing to die for victims. The... Jesus' resurrection is the good news that there is a new life for the poor that is not determined by their poverty, but overcomes it. Overcomes what? Their poverty. So Jesus died so that you would not be poor. Interesting. A fractured hermeneutic will result in a misappropriation and application of the text as revealed by James Cohn. There are many other factors, yes, that, that influences this kind of rationale. But within Christianity, one of the fundamental flaws that we have is our hermeneutic, how we approach Scripture and how we understand the Bible's use and meaning of the word poor. When we go from text to application without understanding the immediate context, the history behind it, the grammar behind it, when we, when we delete that from the process and you just do application, you can become uh, tremendously in, in, in innovative in the way that you apply the scriptures because there's no guidelines. You know, when you, when you, when you bowl, um, have you ever done 10-pin bowling? Uh, for those of you who are learning to bowl, they've got these guardrails for kids, even though I would still throw with it. These guardrails that keeps the ball from, you know, going to the gutter. But when there is no... Proper application of hermeneutics, those guardrails are removed. And you go off the gutter, not only off into the gutter, you go into the other lane. You go into areas where you should not be, if you can get the picture. That is what happens when we fail in our hermeneutic when it comes to the study of God's word. There's a greater danger than just the application. One of the principal dangers is that, uh, one of the principal dangers we are facing today is the weakening of the gospel. The weakening of the gospel by the addition of social reform, cultural uh, renewal, and social justice as companions or an element of the gospel. That is dangerous. The guardrails are down and now fundamentally what we have is the gospel is and must include social justice and social reform. If you don't have that, you do not have the gospel. I'm not saying that that is what the church today is purporting. Listen to Tim Keller saying, 
ministry to the poor, quote, ministry to the poor is a vital component of gospel proclamation, end quote. Do you get that? Ministry to the poor is part of gospel proclamation. You cannot have gospel proclamation if you do not have ministry to the poor. I don't believe Jesus said that in Matthew 28, 19. Go ye and make what? Disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe, uh, uh, teaching, baptizing them and teaching them all that I have taught you. I think that's what it is. I may have misquoted it here and there, but you get the point. <laughs> this is reiterated in many evangelical churches through statements such as, this is the duty of the church. And when they say this is, they mean gospel presentation aligned with ministry to the poor. This is um, the duty of the church. When they say this, they mean gospel presentation as well as social justice. This is the purpose and the mission of the church. We must preach, yes, but also transform people's lives. That's what one author says. Keller defends his argument by quoting Edwards on Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards is wrong on this. Listen to what he says. In terms, quote, in terms of bearing one another could only mean to carry the load of the poor. So he goes from Galatians chapter 1, uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through to 10, where it says we ought to bear one another's burdens. And he says, this is what it means, to carry the load of the poor, because if they are left alone, it will become a burden to them. So in order not to be a burden to them, you have to carry their burden and minister to the poor so that they will not be burdened. I don't think that that is what Paul meant when he wrote that. There is no consideration of what Paul meant when Paul wrote it. No immediate context. It is simply application. Go and help the poor. This is taken further by Derek Morphew, who wrote about the kingdom, the, uh, kingdom theology and human rights, saying this, quote, Ministry to the poor, which includes social justice issues, are also, take note of this, human rights issues, end quote. Hmm. You see how far you go when there are no guardrails? Now it's no longer just in the church. Now it's culture. Now it's human rights. But what falls under human rights as well? Abortion. It's the woman's right to her own body. It's a human rights issue for her to kill a baby. LGBTQ. It's a human rights issue. You cannot. You'll be imprisoned if you try to convert somebody who is in that uh, mindset to become a Christian and to, to lose or leave their lifestyle. It's a human rights issue. They have the right to be that. Clearly, we have lost the plot when it comes to understanding the biblical underst uh, um, uh, uh, explanation of what it means to be poor. What we are going to see here is a crossover into social work, human rights activ activism being merged in gospel ministry. There is no longer a difference. Social work is part of gospel ministry. Social transformation is part of gospel ministry. You cannot have the one without the other. This is where the church is today. One author says this, Mercy ministries they maintain brings issues of poverty into the realm of human rights. Hmm. So, reaching the poor is a gospel issue. But is that what the Bible speaks about? Is that what we are supposed to be doing as Christians? This happens because when we read the, the word poor in the Bible through the lens of poor in our day, we have one group in mind. We equal the one in the Old Testament or New Testament with people today and we're saying it's got to be the same. And we have one application in mind. Reaching the poor means delivering them from their poverty and, and, and going out of a way to get them from their social economic status. We think through our current perspective of what it means to be poor and we fail to understand the significance of that in Scripture. So what I want you to see this morning is that there's a connection between the liberal move that we are seeing towards inclusiveness of social justice, wokeology, liberal theology, and hermeneutics in the Christian church. Wokeology is wokeness, 
and it's I've called it workology. Um, I've come up with various words to define it, to describe it. If we do not hold to a literal grammatical historical hermeneutic consistently, we will inevitably make a hash of practical ministry. Sadly, many are not aware that there is a shift towards Marxism and theological liberalism through the doorway of social justice and wokeism. You go through that avenue, you end up in theological liberalism and Marxism. So what does it mean to be poor in the Bible? Like I said, the sermon will be slightly different to how I normally preach. It's foundational for what I will preach. And the approach this morning will be problem-solution. I'm going to pose a problem, and we'll provide a biblical solution to the problem. And so we have four misnomers regarding the poor in the Bible. I'm going to try to straddle both Old and New Testament um, since... You have poverty in both Old and New Testaments, which give you a more rounded outlook of what it means. Turn over to Exodus chapter 22 as we begin with our first misnomer. Misnomer number one. Here's the problem. Both Jews and Christians are to care for the poor who are marginalized, which includes a foreigner, widow, orphan, and stranger. In this view... This is all one group of people. And I've started touching on this when I preached my last point, second last point in James, the widow and orphan. Um, so I'm going to possibly touch on some of the things that I mentioned there for those of you who weren't uh, with us, and then I will add some new aspects to it. So Exodus chapter 22 to 23 is considered to be the social justice of the law, the, the portion that deals with social justice. Particular interest of particular interest is the mention of the poor, the poor who are considered to be marginalized, the alien or the foreigner and the widow or the orphan. So we are told that if you read these two chapters, chapter 22 and 23, we must walk away with social awareness. We must walk away with the idea that we have a responsibility to not only reach out to the poor, but to help them out of their poverty. The burden of caring for uh, society's poor, weak, and marginalized is upon the people of God. That would include Jews and, the, and, and, and Christians today. How do we get there? Well, look at um, verse 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear the cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. Well, there you go. If you don't care for the stranger, the widow and the orphan, God will come after you and take your wives, wife, not wives, wife, and your children will be orphans in actually Take your own life, not your wife. Take your own life and the children will be orphans and your wife will be a widow. Okay, so let me just step back a little bit here. If this is the social justice, the foundation of what it means to consider social justice, let's read it in its context. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Wait, 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 wait. Social justice, right? You make a woman pregnant, guess what you're going to do? You're going to take responsibility of her. Let's add that into social justice. Say social justice. Uh, what about verse 18? You shall not permit a, sorcer, uh, a sorceress uh, to live. It's pretty simple. Social justice. You cannot, you cannot have uh, somebody that deals with the dead and with the spirit world. You can't allow them to live. How come that is not part of social justice? What about verse 12? Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Pretty clear. No need to say any more about that. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh alone shall be devoted to destruction. That is burned. Stoned and burned. Interesting. 
I don't see that in any social justice manual. But they start in verse 21. Why do they do that? Because they're not interested in the literal application of Scripture. They're not at all. What they are interested in is proof text to prove their point. The point is, you need to help the poor. So I will choose this verse, verse 21 through to verse 23, uh, 24, to, to say that you need to, to reach out to the poor. Um, no, it's got nothing to do with social justice. What Moses is outlining here, I should say what God is outlining here, is the moral responsibility of the Jews to purity in their society. To purity in their society. Hence the command to wipe out those who worship other gods. Hence the command to, 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 uh, to remove those who are, are, are dealing and engaged in any kind of immorality. Then from um, the, the social responsibility of purity, there's also the social responsibility to those who are suffering. That is verse 21, but it, it extends from verse 21 right through to chapter 23, verse 8. So if you're going to talk about social justice, you've got to include the entire section. So included in this, following verse uh, 25, you have not joining hands with the wicked. Well, they fail on that. Included in the social justice is not being partial to the poor in lawsuits. They fail on that. Included in the social justice is not taking bribes, but doing what is right. Well, they fail in that. But you don't see that mentioned in social justice or in the manuals of social justice. What about verse 28 of chapter 22? You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Hmm. <laughs> I think that's pretty simple. You shall not revile God and the ruler that he has placed over you. Ever done that about our leaders? It's pretty simple. How come this is not added into social justice? What you do have here is not an outline or a manual of social justice. This is given to Israel to separate them from how the nations live. This is what God requires of his people, Israel, in their relationship with him as covenant people. Again, they're not interested in pleasing God. Besides, they cannot please God. How do I know that this has got nothing to do with social justice and that there is a very specific idea in mind? Well, look at chapter 23, verse 9. So he comes back to the idea of the sojourner. You shall not oppress the sojourner, you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. This is why chapter 22, verse 21 exists. In fact, he repeats it in verse 21. You shall not do wrong to the sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Why do you not treat um, the word they oppress is the word press down? Uh, to, 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 to cause oppression. And God is saying to them, you will not cause them to be oppressed. You will not press them down. Why? Because you know exactly what it means to be oppressed. You were in Egypt as oppressed. And so God brings sojourners, aliens or immigrants into the land of Israel. Why? Not so that so much they would not oppress. I don't like double negatives, but I'm going to use it in this way. Not oppress the sojourner, but so that they would have a reminder of what they were. This is why God sends foreigners to them. Remember what you were in Egypt. It's a testimony to the nation of Israel that I delivered you from oppression. It's a testimony of God's work of deliverance in their lives. See, if you go from text to application, you miss the significance of the passage. God says, you know the heart of a sojourner. You know exactly what it feels like to be a stranger. You know what it means to be squeezed and oppressed, oppressed down, for you were sojourners in Egypt. So I send you these sojourners to remind you of what you were. And in the process, treat them with dignity and honor. Don't press them down. God does not say, that you have the poor or the marginalized so that you would care for them. But he does say you have the sojourner so that you would remember what you were. That's two different things. In fact, 
Sojourner is never used of those who are poor. Two different words, two different purposes. It's a distinct group, and you can go through the section. All three of them are mentioned distinctly. This is the sojourner, the foreigner, or the stranger. Then you have the widow and the orphan who are often mentioned uh, together. You were strangers in Egypt. You were harshly treated as aliens. Now don't do the same. Remember where you were. If we randomly change the meaning of words to include all people of all poverty, then you lose its efficacy. And, and, and when we take sojourner to mean the marginalized and the poor and the immigrant that is at the border, we miss the point that God is making to Israel. It is also interesting that in 23 verse 3, nor shall you be partial to the poor man. That word is dal. Not dal as in is, is dof. Dal, D-A-L. And he's the one that is low or brought low. This is different from the guy in chapter 22, verse 25. If you lend money to my people with you who is poor, this is the aner, aner, not aner, that would be man, but anir. This is the afflicted one which is different from the guy in chapter 23, verse 10. For six years you shall uh, sow your land and gather in its field, but in the seventh year you shall let it rest uh, and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. That poor there is avior. Three different words, and what you find out if you do a study of these words that even in the category of poor, there are subcategories of poverty, subcategories of those who are poor, those who are afflicted were considered poor, those who are in need were are considered poor, and those who are beggars who are considered poor. All three of them exist in the uh, nation of Israel, and God doesn't call them just poor. He has specific words for them. They are not synonymous. They can be used synonymously at certain times, and I'll show uh, some of that to you later on. But they are not always synonymous. I think it's the NSB that at the moment is the only one that keeps the word needy and afflicted. It's the most literal you can have for certain of the words poor, as I've just mentioned. And I'll get back to that in a moment's time or, or next week. But what you would find here is that not even God uses one specific word for poor. It's got different words to define the different groups of people under the category, the, the canopy or the umbrella of poverty. But nowhere, not in the section or anywhere else, do you find the command to eradicate poverty. Find it. You go ahead and I challenge you to find it. There is no such verse, eradicate poverty or take the poor out of their circumstance. The word stranger and foreigner is not used for the word poor. So let's not use it as a synonym for those who are poor. In this context, God is not talking about taking away their poverty. In fact, he mentions this word oppress, oppress, oppress over and over. Why? Because for the stranger, there's one thing that he should not do that is oppressing. God wanted the Jews to avoid oppression, literally pressing them down. Because at some time in the past, they were just like them. What God is doing here is giving them a continual reminder of what they were and where they were. This is what Exodus says. God remembered his promise to the patriarchs. God requires that his people ought to deal with the, with the strangers the same way as, as he dealt with them. It is a misnomer to think that this applies to aliens that is not aliens from outer space for those of you who are young. This is uh, when somebody is a foreigner to a land and they are at the border. They are called an alien. Well, now this is called a, a marginalized or an immigrant. It's not the same. There is not the same equation. The foreigner is not the immigrant of today. The law here exists to remind them of what God has done for them. While it is not wrong to, have a, to have, allow aliens or, or, or immigrants into the country and for us to care for them, this is not the verse to use for that. 
we lose its significance when we change the meanings. But what is the principle here? Well, what would be the, the natural deduction that we could come up with as a principle to live by? This is what I think we could place in our lives as a principle. There go I, but for the grace of God. Think about that. God gives the foreigners to the Jews as a reminder of where they were and what they were. How does that go? Uh, how, how do we transition from that principle to our lives? We look at those who are in a, a, a state of oppression, a state of, of slavery, spiritually speaking. And what do we say about them? There goes I, but for the grace of God. This has got nothing to do with liberation, but to do with testimony, what God is testifying to you about what He has done in your life. Now, I'm not saying that the, that speaks about the New Testament church. I'm saying a principle that can be derived from that. So instead of moving from that to application, where it means that we eradicate poverty, a closer principle would be to look at them and say, there goes I but for the grace of God. Misnomer number two. Israel, as well as the church, must work at eradicating the problem of poverty. And let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 15, one of the favorite passages of the social justice in the church. Social justice movement is this chapter. Specifically, from verse 7 onwards. If anyone among you, one of your brothers, should become poor... In any of your towns within your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. There you go. Don't shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. There you go. Eradication of the poor, right? Doesn't it say that? You should, don't, don't close your hand. Open your hand. Give him whatever he needs. So what should we do with this? Should we go out of a way to reach those who are poor? Should we open our hands and basically just give? Is that what he's saying? Look at verse 7 again. I was taught that when you are given a difficult passage, you answer the problem from the passage because often the answer is there. Look at verse 7. If one among you, who's he talking to? The nation, right? Jews. One of your brothers shall become poor. Clearly not all the poor. One of your brothers shall become poor. That's a huge difference. So he's talking to Jews, speaking about those Jews who are suffering. But notice in verse 4, just back up and go to verse 4. But there will be no poor among you, for Yahweh will bless you in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance. Hang on. To possess. What is happening here? First he says, there will be no poor. Look down at verse 11. And then he says, in verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in your land. Is God contradicting himself here? So how do we deal with a difficult situation like this, where it seems like there's a, uh, uh, an apparent contradiction? On the one hand, they won't be poor. On the other hand, they will be poor. And then he says, oh, just take care of the poor. Make sure that you eradicate the poverty. Is that what it says? Well, no, not, not exactly. In verse 4, avion is used. That word is specifically related to a person that had land and is dispossessed from his land. He had possessions and he loses his possessions and in that case when he has lost his land or his possessions he sells himself into slavery so that he can take care of his debt this is that person it relates somehow and in some way to the land to a loan and to inheritance in fact you can clearly see that if you go from verse one in at the end of every seven years you shall grant a release and in this manner, 
of release, every creditor shall release what has been lent to his neighbor, not the world, not the nations, not the foreigner, to his neighbor. He shall not exact um, it of his neighbor, his brother, because Yahweh's release has been proclaimed. God's deliverance or God's freedom has been proclaimed. Then he speaks about a uh, foreigner. You can exact tax on the foreigner, but not on your brother. But there will be no poor among you. What does he mean? Well, Moses is talking about the fact that they are about to enter the land. He's talking about the promise that God made to Abram and the promise that he reiterated uh, um, uh, to, to them in the wilderness and that he will reiterate to them through Joshua. So he's talking about going into the land. What did God promise them when they would go into the land? The land, right? So God is saying, yeah, they, when you go in, you will have nobody that will be without land. That is the, the idea of us for. There will be no poor among you. Take note of this. For the Lord will bless you. And that preposition in is rightly translated with the land. So in order to take care of the poverty of not having land, there is going to be no poverty. That, is, that means nobody without land because I am going to give you what? The land. That's how simple it is. I'm taking you into the land because I promise you to give you the land. And when you enter the land, you will get the land. That is my promise. But let's not end there. Look at the beginning of verse 5. If only you will strictly obey the voice of Yahweh your God. That doesn't mean you will be perpetually without the poor. That doesn't mean you will perpetually own the land. I'm giving you the land only until such a time as you disobey my voice. When you disobey my voice, what happens to the nation of Israel? Exiled. They lose the land. They are then considered poor. Do you see this word poor relates, this specific word relates to the loss of land as it relates to God's promise of the land to his people. So now, verse 7, if anyone among you, one of your brothers should become poor, same word, one of you has lost his rights to the land in any of your towns within your land that Yahweh your God is giving you, see the emphasis is still on the land. You shall not harden your hearts or shut your hand against your poor, the one who's lost his land, your poor brother. Why? Because it's the year of deliverance, the year of jubilee, the sabbatical year, where six years they can be dispossessed from the lands, but in the land, but in the seventh year, what happens to the land? It returns to them. If they were slaves for six years, what happens to them in the seventh year? They get delivered from their slavery. This is what God is speaking about. A very specific, unique time of their lives that in the seventh year, there will be liberation. In the seventh year, there will be giving back of the land. This is not a principle for us in perpetuity because we are not Jews. It doesn't apply to us in the same way as it applied to them. So this is conditional. Verse 11 then, which seems to contradict verse 4, is the anticipation and probably the prophetic aspect of God knowing that they will fail. They will not obey His word. And so He says, you will always... Oh, so therefore, there shall never cease to be poor in your land. You will always have poor. Why? Because you cannot, you cannot keep my law. So God is prophetically speaking about what will happen as they enter the land. In this context, the poor man is the one who must be up to be restored in, uh, to his land in the seventh year of um, the seventh year cycle, the sabbatical year of rest, which is clearly indicated here in verse seven, uh, in verse one. But why? In in Exodus, we have the reason. Go back to Exodus twenty-three. In Deuteronomy, Moses doesn't exactly give you the fundamental reason for these things, why they have to do it. But in Exodus 23, which is the foundation upon which Deuteronomy is built, the reason is clearly indicated. 
If you look at verse 12 onwards, he says, Six days you shall do your work, but in the seventh day you shall rest. This becomes a standard for all mankind. This becomes a, a model by which we live because this is the creation week. Interestingly, it becomes the model in which Israel ought to relate to one another. So you have six years of work. If you enslave yourself for six years, what happens in the seventh year? Liberty, freedom, rest, even the land. You will till it and work it for six years, but in the seventh year, what happens? It will rest. This is what God established in creation. And this is what he is reiterating here. In verse 14, he says, Three times a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded you. You shall eat unleavened bread uh, for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. Why is he going back to Egypt? Because God wants to remind them of the deliverance that is related to the promise. And God remembered his people. And so God moves to get them out of oppression and take them to the land that he promised to, to, to Abraham. That promise is being fulfilled in Exodus. And God reminds them of this in saying that you will do these things because these things will remind you of the deliverance that I executed, the deliverance that I, de uh, that I performed uh, over you. And as a result of that, none of them will appear before him empty. And they will remember their God through their sacrifices. Why does he repeat these uh, things at this stage? God has given the Jews a perpetual reminder of his kindness in the creation week, which affects their Sabbath rest, which affects their festivals. In other words, your kindness shown to the poor in the land, the poor person who's lost his land, is a reminder of my kindness to you in delivering you from poverty. Secondly, the year of God's favor, the seventh year that is being spoken about here, is the year of deliverance. The presence of the poor with regard to the loss of land speaks of God's provision of deliverance of those who have once been enslaved. There's a theological reason why God put things into place. And when we take the word poor and just apply it to the poor today, we lose that significance. The gift to the nation is not only their deliverance, but also the poverty that exists in the nation. It's a constant reminder of God's delivering work. Nowhere in Deuteronomy or in Exodus do you find this, however, that you must eradicate poverty. It's not there. They use Deuteronomy as an argument for that. For instance, Tim Chester, I don't know if anybody still quotes him, but for this purposes, I will. He says, quote, When God's people, based on Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 15, when God's people live under God's rule, there will be no poor among them. Is that what he's saying? Is this what God is saying? If you remain uh, faithful to me, you, we will, you will eradicate poverty? He says this, God's rule is a liberating rule, a rule of justice and blessing. It's a rule of peace and prosperity. God is not so much talking about them not having poverty, but their inability to keep his law. If you keep my law, you won't have poor. But verse 11 tells you that they will have poor. Why? Because they cannot keep the law. So what's the problem here? Again, when you go from text to application, without historical background, we weaken and cheapen the intended meaning. God's application was pretty clear. In the seventh year, you open your hand. You take care of them. Give them the land back. Whatever they need, you make sure they get. Provide them the deliverance that they need. Now, let's turn to Matthew 26. Jesus mentions this as well. Matthew 26, 11. <clears throat> For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have 
me. Sounds familiar, right? And it is. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 25, verse 11. So how should we understand this? What's the context here? Well, there's a woman here in the house of Simon the leper. And she comes to Jesus and she takes an alabaster box, I believe it is, which is worth 300 denarii. One denarii is a day's wage, I believe. A day's wage. Um, let me get that. This is a day or a week. I can't remember. And she comes and she breaks this jar. And look at verse 4. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a lump sum, a large sum, and given to the poor. Oh, what a noble request. We could have taken that all that you just wasted and given it to the poor, given the, the, the money to the poor. Let me pause here. Let's just consider the response of the disciples here. John tells us that it is Judas who was just about to betray him that says we could have given it to the poor. Mark tells us that some of the disciples were thinking this, but Judas is the one that says it. Matthew says that all of them were indignant. He gives nobody a bypass. All of them were indignant because she poured out the oil over Jesus. So let's consider that. You could have sold it for 300 denarii. In other words, you could have taken care of the poor. 365 days in a year. One denarii is a wage for one day. You could have had almost a year's worth of income if you sold that. They were right vexed at this woman. Why would she dare waste such precious ointment on Jesus' head and feet? What's wrong with her? Sell it and give it to the poor, they say. And it sounds noble. Sounds right. But often what is missed here is that Jesus is the one that places a higher um, importance on his worship and on, on sacrifice for him than on the poor. Look at the words of Jesus. Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. She's done it to prepare me for my death and resurrection. In other words, in the larger scheme of things, the priority is not the plight of the poor. The priority is the worship of Christ. Let me restate it this way. The value of the life, death, and the worship of Jesus Christ is far more greater in importance than helping the poor. It is Jesus that puts the priority on himself rather than the poor. And we have a struggle with that because it sounds like almost Jesus doesn't love the poor. Hang on, I'll get there in a moment's time. This, however, goes against the stream of liberal theology, social justice, and wokeology. Tim Chester, for instance, says this on this passage. Jesus is not saying that there are more important things to spend our money uh, on than the poor. Yes, he is. He is. He's saying there is something more important than selling this and giving it to the poor, and it is me. There is something, an, an, an activity that is far more important to helping the poor, and it is me. He goes on to say, nor is he suggesting that continuing presence of the poor makes care for them pointless. I agree with that. Jesus is not saying that. He commends care for the poor as a normal priority, something that we can do at any time. I don't know if that is what Jesus is saying. Because contextually, that is not what Jesus is saying. This is incorrect. That is not the point Jesus is making. It is he who places his worth, his worship, of far more importance than that of the poor. You will always have the poor. Now just think back. This is given in Deuteronomy chapter 25 in the context of the poor man who has lost his land, right? So because of disobedience in the land as the nation of Israel, what happens? There will be poverty. 
Jesus is quoting that. Take note of this. He is going back to what it means to be disobedient to God. It is not surprising that he quotes this passage in its context because of the, what this woman does will in fact echo the point of God's deliverance and provision for his people. What she's doing is pointing to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is God's provision of deliverance for God's people. In fact, the word that is used here for poor is the same word in the Greek New Testament, in the, uh, uh, the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament of the poor in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Notice that Jesus does not say, you will have the poor in this world. He says, you will always have the poor with you. Not in the world. He's talking to Jews in a Jewish context as they are disobedient. But provision of deliverance is coming. That's the point that Christ is making. You will begin to see if you keep this thing in mind, these things in mind and you start looking through Scripture with the poor in mind, not through the cultural understanding of it, but that God has never intended to remove the plight of the poor. It's never been His intent. In this life at least. So let me restate it this way. God is not concerned in taking people out of poverty, but He's concerned about redeeming the souls of those who are poor. That is far more important than getting them to uh, a socioeconomical, uh, economic level that is better for them. What we are witnessing in the evangelical church is a gravitation towards liberal theology where there's no difference between social work and gospel ministry. Again, James Cohn says this, quote, The Bible is not a blueprint on this matter, dealing with the poor. It is a valuable symbol for pointing to God's revelation in Christ. It's just a symbol. But it is not self-interpreting. We are thus placed in an existential situation of freedom in which the burden is on us to make the decision without a guaranteed ethical guide, end quote. In other words, you have no help in Scripture with regards to helping the poor. And uh, I think he gets the idea that God is not interested in eradicating poverty. That is not his goal. And so he says, I don't get any help, so I'm going to look elsewhere. Listen to this. Since scripture does not provide the guidelines for dealing with poverty, Cohn is forced to look elsewhere. He says, quote, the Christian faith does not possess in its nature the means to analyzing the structure of capitalism. So you go from poverty to capitalism. But Marxism, as a tool of social analysis, can disclose the gap between appearance and reality, thereby helping Christians to see how things really are, in quote. Did you get that? Marxism can help us deal with poverty. Wow. The Bible can't help, but Marxism can. No wonder that the church has folded to wokeism, social justice, and the social gospel so easily. I should probably add BLM in there because it's made inroads in the church as well. What many do not realize is that the ideological fight to eradicate the plight of the poor does not come from Scripture. It comes from the world. Marxism is, not, is nothing more than a power grab against capitalism, which leads to first socialism and then what? Communism. We are talking politics in the realm of Christianity. This is where we are. The problem we are facing in the church today, um, al along with social justice and wokeology, is Christian activism which aims at relieving temporal struggles of people. Consider the effect of this. I'm going to end on this because I won't get to the other two. Consider the effect of this. What about theology that appears? What about theology that supposes that being poor is a sin? Think about that. If you say, well, no, God doesn't want you to be poor, what is the opposite of that? God wants you to have wealth, right? He wants you to be rich. It's interestingly interesting that they don't take the same um, approach 
to the condemnation of the rich in scripture as they do to the, 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 the supposed help of the poor in scripture. It's not a long leap to liberal theology. If the, the seeds have already been laid that poverty is wrong, then it's not a huge leap to go to liberal theology where poverty can be eradicated by just joining hands with the world. When the goal is temporal relief over temporal struggle, then the eternal is lost. Make sense? When the goal is only to get people out of a temporal problem, then the eternality of one's soul gets lost in the mire of temporal concerns. Let me put it this way. People want temporal relief. When you only offer them temporal relief, what are you giving them? Exactly what they want. The gospel is not what people want. The gospel tells us that we are sinners, depraved before a holy God, and stand condemned before God. And as a result of our, our, our state, we will be lost eternally. They don't want that. What they do want is to hear that God has a wonderful plan for your life, which is a lie. Because once you get saved, and some of you have testified to this, it doesn't always get easier. There are those of you who are still unemployed and you came to Saving Faith, right? There are those of you who came to Saving Faith and your life got harder. It doesn't mean the removal of poverty. When the church turns from making the gospel central, then the souls of people are at risk. The gospel must be central in our ministry. Let me jump to one aspect of how the church can help the poor. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And we'll return to this next week. Galatians 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. So who's the everyone here? Who's the all? And especially to those who are of the household of faith. Even though, and I may get to this next week, even though some take this, uh, Jonathan Edwards does, he says the doing good here is the ministry to the poor. It doesn't limit it, right? It says do good to all people. And it's not necessarily talking about financial help here. But it says it, we are to be doing good. Look at verse 9. And let us grow, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially with those who are of the household of God. There's a priority with the household. It starts with those who are in the household of faith first. It starts with God's people first. And then we look out to those who are on the outside. Verse 6, let the one who is taught, uh, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Again, we have the idea of sharing good with those who are serving God's people. There is a limited view in view here. It starts with the household of God. It may not end with the household of God, but that is your primary responsibility is to care for those who are in the household before you start looking outside. What we are seeing in the evangelical church today is we're looking outside. We want to help solve the social problems and the plights of the world, and God has not called us to that. That is not the main priority of the church. The main priority of the church is the gospel to the world. Our relationship to the world begins with the gospel. The main priority of the church within its own borders is to edify, encourage, and help one another to live godly lives. I'm going to end on that since there's so much more to say. I hope this is helpful. Poor does not necessarily mean economic poor in the scripture. That is one of the fundamental principles that you have to understand. When you see the word poor, don't just think economic poverty because that is not always the case. We need to understand that there is a context behind each passage. 
Uh, come on Wednesday and we will discuss some aspects of the first two points of uh, these misnomers and hopefully uh, we can get uh, done next week. Let me close in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and that there are various aspects of social struggles that we deal with today that we sometimes think there are no answers for, but your word is sufficient. It provides clarity of thought. It provides a guideline and principles. It provides a fundamental reality that we can think through, a worldview that we can apply to our lives as we engage this world. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to be faithful to the study of your word before we get to the application of the word. Help us to apply your word properly. Help us to think clearly about what you seek, uh, what you desire for us uh, to do. Pray now for our departure from one another as we seek to honor you in our lives. Many of us will be engaged with many people of different um, social economic um, uh, status in, 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 in their lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant us grace, grant us wisdom as we seek to minister to them. Grant us the boldness to share the gospel with them, Lord. And if need be, give them a cup of water or a piece of bread. We pray that you would be gracious to us and help us to remember of the deliverance that you have wrought in our lives as we see many people enslaved to a world that is taking them to a lost eternity. So we give thanks to you for your kindness and your grace in our lives. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.